Jesus asks that you uh, use these next few minutes to teach us from your word and help us be more like you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, hello, 945. Good to see you guys here. Thank you for being here. Uh, When my wife and I lived in California, we had a dog, and it was half whippet, half lab, which meant it had the energy of a nuclear power plant. And one time she ate an entire box of caffeinated tea, and I had a Bible study that night, and the dog would jump on one person's lap and then jump down and spin around and chase his tail, then jump on another lap and then down and then up and then down. And like we, we actually had to cancel the Bible study. So we had to find ways to get rid of all this energy, walks, runs, things like that. And one of the things I would do is I would hold a dog toy up just beyond the dog's reach, and the dog would jump and jump and jump for like 30 minutes straight. It was like I would do it while I was eating, talking on the phone. You know, people would say, what's that sound? Oh, it's my dog, you know, just jumping around, trying to get rid of the energy because it was inexhaustible. That dog could not be exhausted. And that is how it is with God's love. It is inexhaustible. You cannot wear it out. And God's love is stronger than our fears, stronger than our screw-ups, strong enough to transform the problems in your life and in our country and in our world. And what that means is there is hope. Hope for difficult family situations, career situations, school problems, hope for fearful or bored people, and hope for healing the problems that we see in the news, which is one of the themes in the book of Jonah, which we're reading through this month. And I'd encourage you to read it. It's a very short book, and you can find it right between Obadiah and Micah. That should help you find it real quick, that little hint right there. God tells Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which was posing a military threat to Israel. And the Assyrians had a policy of genocide. They would wipe out entire groups of people. They would torture people, skin them alive, pound iron hooks through their noses, behead them by the hundreds. I mean, really bad people. Like, you know, kind of a combo of ISIS and the Nazis. But because of God's inexhaustible grace, he wants to reach them and transform them. But Jonah wants nothing to do with that. So he gets on a boat and he goes to Tarshish. And you can see the map there. God tells him go east to Nineveh in Asia. And instead, Jonah goes as far west as he can go to Europe to the end of the known world. And in the process, though, Jonah discovers God's inexhaustible love and unstoppable hope. And the first thing we learn from this story is that God's love is stronger than our running. Now, Jonah has really good reason to run away. We, we know from other parts of the Bible he was a successful prophet. He got to tell the Israelites that their territory and wealth as a nation was going to expand, so he had a happy message, right? So he's, he's fine, he's not, and he is not interested in a career change at all, especially to Nineveh, lower pay, terrible people, high chance of death, right? No thank you. So he goes to Tarshish, which was kind of a happening city. I mean, it was wealthy. It was prosperous. All the tech companies were moving there. It was awesome, right? And those are good things. But Jonah, Jonah uses them to avoid doing what God asked him to do and instead escapes into comfort and success and pleasure and wealth, maybe a little bit like we do sometimes, But what he discovers in this process is that you cannot outrun God's love. He will hunt you down. While Jonah is is on the boat, there's a storm. That's God pursuing him. 
Then the sailors throw Jonah overboard to try to stop the storm, and Jonah is swallowed by a big fish, and he's in the fish for three days, and I know that raises practical questions like, how's that possible? And I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, other questions. Like, it's just kind of weird to think about. Like, what did he eat? You know, like, did he eat fish that was already in the whale's stomach? Or, you know, and like, if he did, could he ever enjoy sushi again? You know, and other really super profound questions like that. But one of the things what he discovers in the whale is that God is, God's love is relentless and you cannot get away from it. In keeping with the dog analogy I used earlier, I saw this picture on Facebook. Squirrels are just tennis balls thrown by God. <laughs> if you have ever seen a dog chasing a squirrel, that is how God pursues us relentlessly, relentlessly. And Jonah realizes this, and the text says, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So a little too much information there. But the next verse is awesome. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. There is so much hope in that verse, because it shows that God's love is stronger than our failures. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God's grace doesn't even make sense, right? Like Jonah has screwed up. He's disobeyed God. Do you give the employee who's blown the big account through his own negligence a second chance at a big account, right? Of course not. But God is different than we are. His grace is different than ours. It's inexhaustible, which is a good argument for why the Bible's not made up, because human beings don't think this way. See, with God, failure isn't fatal. Failure makes us useful. It can make us humble. It can give us compassion. Now, it's also true failure, failure can make us bitter. But with God's grace involved, failure can send you on to great things. Someone who's gone through a rough spot in a marriage or relationship can help another couple who's going through the same thing. A former alcoholic can help another alcoholic recover. Failure isn't fatal. It makes you useful. So after the bad grade, the word of the Lord comes to you a second time. After the relationship fails, the word of the Lord comes to you a second time. After that argument with your spouse where you said things you should not have said, the word of the Lord comes to you a second time. After you feel like a failure as a parent, the word of the Lord comes to you a second time. After you've fallen back into that bad habit, the word of the Lord comes to you a second, a third, a fourth time. God's love is stronger than our screw-ups. So after being spit out, Jonah goes into the city and he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And let me just geek out here on the Hebrew a little bit because it's kind of cool. The Hebrew word for overturned can mean destroyed or overturned as in be transformed or turned around. So in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be changed for better or for worse is up to how the people respond. And they respond wonderfully. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which is really scratchy cloth. And then it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And in Hebrew, there's a lot of wordplay going on in this part of the, of, the, of, the, of the story. Jonah says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. But when God saw that they turned from their bad behavior, God turned around and showed mercy because God's love is stronger than our screw-ups. And Jonah hates this. Jonah hates this. 
which is why the very next thing he says is, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And Jonah's got a point here. Like these Ninevites, they aren't Girl Scouts, all right? Like they're nasty people. And Jonah wants God to blast them, understandably so. And when God shows grace, Jonah gets mad and he starts yelling at God, right? This is the problem with you, God. You've got hair trigger compassion, right? Like at the drop of a sackcloth, you just forgive and forgive and it's irritating. Yeah, it is. Because God's grace is greater than our sins and our failures. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just keep sinning and screwing up, you know, I like, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. The world is admirably arranged. No. Because our sin has real consequences. It hurts you. It hurts me. It hurts others. God doesn't want us to get hurt. I saw a picture of a sign the other day that said everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. <laughs> right? Sin has real consequences. Right? God's grace isn't permission to keep doing that because it causes pain. But it's also true that God's love is greater than our sins and our failures. And when you really experience his love, not just his head knowledge, but in your heart, really experience it in prayer and worship and music and through other people, it changes you. I had a friend in college who had such a bad temper issue. One time he actually got so angry, he vandalized a stop sign, ended up pulling the stop sign out of the ground in anger. Right? Well, in, in the middle of this, he, he got a job as a worship leader in a church, which, which kind of doesn't make sense, right? Like, I know, let's put angry man in charge of the band. But I said, hey, flat, you morons. Right? But leading worship helped him experience God's grace, God's presence, God's love. And over time, it kind of changed him. And today, you wouldn't know that he had that terrible temper. He, he is calm even in traffic, even in Bell Square parking lot at Christmas where I was yesterday, and I was not calm. God's love changes us. Which brings me to the next point. God's love is stronger than our judgmentalism. See, Jonah's a little kind of self-righteous and judgmental here. Because that's what religion without relationship with God does to you. Religion without relationship turns into religiosity, makes you kind of judgmental. In college, I had another friend who was really into the party scene and drank a little bit too much, but started following Jesus, started doing more fun things, healthier things, right? But his parents were angry because he was going to a Presbyterian church and they belonged to a different denomination. His mom said, I would rather he was a drunk atheist than a Presbyterian. You can totally see her point, right? <clears throat> Pity all of us who are here. <clears throat> but it's not just Christians who get self-righteous and preachy and judgmental, our secular world is judgmental. And if you don't believe me, just look at political comments on social media, right? Preachy, self-righteous, judgmental. But what Jonah learns is that nobody is beyond God's reach, not even the Ninevites. They actually respond better to God than Jonah does. They, they turn to God. Jonah runs away from God. See, we have no idea how God is working in people that we think maybe are really far from him. <clears throat> the writer Philip Yancey tells the story of a man named Will Campbell who works for racial justice. And Will Campbell had this eight-word summary of the gospel. We're all jerks, but Jesus loves us anyway. Well, one night his best friend, a black man, was killed by a white Klansman. The next day, an atheist friend of Campbell's was kind of... Uh, 
taunting him about his faith and said, let's test your faith now. Was your friend who was killed a jerk? And Campbell said, well, I guess in the sense that we're all sinners, yes, sure, we all mess up. Yeah, I guess. Well, what about the Klansmen? Campbell said, well, clearly. The atheist said, well, which one of those jerks does God love more? And at that point, Campbell realized the, the full power of God's offensive love. It is offensive that God would love that clansman. I find that offensive. A price should be paid. He should be punished. And in fact, he was. He was sent to jail as he should have been to protect other people. But Campbell also realized that the power of God's grace is that the ultimate price has already been paid by Jesus on the cross. Your sins, my sins, were driven into the hands of a righteous man by a brutal Roman nail. And Jesus took the punishment for all of our sins. So Campbell switched his profession and now he is what he calls an apostle to the rednecks. And he goes around preaching about Jesus' love to white racists. And many of whom, when they experience Jesus' love themselves, leave their life of hate, leave the clan, and convince other clansmen to do the same. Which means because of Campbell, there are now fewer clansmen in the world, which is a good thing. See, God's love brings real social change by transforming people one person at a time. Which shows my next point, and that is that God's love is stronger than all the problems in our world. After hearing Jonah's message, the king of Nineveh says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up all of their evil ways and their violence. And the word violence is important there because the main sin of the Assyrian Empire was violence. But when they experience God's love, they are changed. Just like God is transforming white racists through Will Campbell, which helps heal America's original sin of slavery and racism. God's love is the most powerful force on earth, and it brings real world change. And we can experience this even, even in the personal lives, right? Even on a, on a personal level. Let, let me ask, just for instance, let me ask. Let's say you get in a fight with someone, a spouse, a friend, a, your, a child, a parent. Let's, let's say you get in a fight. Which is more effective in bringing relational healing? Okay, either A... Escalate and reiterate your points with increasing anger until your spouse, child, parent is crushed by the weight of your superior reasoning and says, oh my goodness, I am, you are so much smarter than me. How could I have been so wrong? You know, as we experience all the time. Or B, own the ways that you have screwed up and say, I'm sorry, and then have them reciprocate. Which is more effective, A or B? B, yeah, you did, you did really well. The other groups, it took them a long time to answer that question. And I'm like, it's a rhetorical question. It should not take you this long, right? They're just like, I don't know. I mean, A is kind of good, right? <clears throat> Power and anger create brokenness. Love heals. And yes, there is such a thing as healthy conflict that drives us to better decisions, deeper understanding. But what makes it healthy is love, which is why God sends you and me to bring healing to our world. God's project is to pull this world back into right relatedness, justice, peace. He is by nature a calling and a sending God, which is why we've been doing this community art project for the last couple weeks. Last couple weeks, we've asked you to fill out a disc, a cardboard disc, answering the question, where do you feel God calling you to bring healing? And thousands of you did this, including some of our children. And you said things like this, reach out to Hispanic families in my school or feed our neighbor's children, or make fellow students feel safe at school, 
or, or I like this one. There's no words, right? It's just kind of, I think that just means I'm going to be happy wherever I go. Many of you wrote down things like heal racial divisions, poverty, addiction, invite a neighbor to dinner. Some of you wrote down very painful things like heal my daughter's addiction by forgiving her. Heal the relationship with my parents. Thank you for your transparency when you wrote on these discs. So this week is part two of this project, and this is your homework for this week, okay? So don't forget this on your way out. Those discs are out there on a sculpture that some people in our church made. It actually kind of resembles a fish to kind of keep with the whole Jonah thing, right? And today as you leave, just take one of those discs, and you're not going to know whose disc it is because they're anonymous, but between now and Christmas, pray for the person on that disc and for the ways that they feel called to bring healing as well as do whatever it is you wrote down on your disc, knowing that someone else has your disc and is praying for you as well. Okay? On your way out, get a disc. Pray for that person every day between now and Christmas. And if you didn't get a chance to write on a disc or you want to do a second or a third one, there are some discs out there in the lobby. And as we each take a disc off that sculpture, the light inside of it is going to spread across the sculpture, just reminding us that when we go out with God's love, it brings real world change. In fact, some of these discs have been posted on Instagram, and we've had numerous non-Christians respond and say things like, oh man, given all that's in the news, this is just a breath of fresh air. That thousands of people are out there trying to bring healing, that just gives me hope. And as Annie said a couple weeks ago in her sermon, God is not asking that we do this perfectly. God is just asking that we show up. Which brings me to my last point, and that is that God's love is stronger than our lameness. And that is good news, man. Jonah is at best a half-hearted prophet and preaches probably the worst sermon ever. Right? One of our staff people said, that's what I should have titled this sermon, the worst sermon ever. He doesn't work here anymore. <laughs> Here's Jonah's sermon, right? This is it. This is Jonah's sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Like, that's it. Like the, he left out the part about God's love, God's grace. There are no action steps to tell the Ninevites what to do. No sermon illustrations or cute stories about his kid. It has only one thing going for it. What is it? It's short. Oh, you said that too fast. That's hurtful. <laughs> other than that, though, other than it's short, it is a terrible sermon. But it worked anyway because God loves, God's love works even through our lameness. We just have to show up. I told you a few weeks ago that this summer, my youngest daughter w went on a pun spree. It was just one pun after another. One of my favorites was this. Did you hear about the Spanish magician? He said, at the count of three, I'll vanish. Uno, dos, and then he vanished without a trace. <laughs> it's so lame, it actually kind of works, right? Like, it's so bad, it sort of becomes good. That's how it is with our lameness. God works through our lameness, gets his stuff done. Anyway, we just have to show up and do our half-hearted, half-baked best, and God will do the rest. I'll close with this. A man named Mike Graves teaches preaching at a seminary. 
And he tells a story about going to the ordination of one of his students. And the student had a lot of people coming and said that they would all go out to eat dinner before the evening service at the church. Well, Mike wondered how they're going to get 19 people in and out of a restaurant in time for church. So he and a colleague went ahead to the restaurant and put their name, to put their names in on a waiting list. And, and the restaurant was run by Amish people. You know, that really strict religious sect. They, they kind of live like the Puritans. They don't use moderate modern appliances, kind of wear old-fashioned clothes, all of that. Well, there was a huge crowd at this restaurant. So Mike went to the front, and there was a sign that said, please do not give your name until your whole party is here. You know where this is going. So Mike went up to the host and said, name is Graves, party of 19. And the Amish man said, and is your whole party here? And Mike said, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And he said, I wasn't trying to beat the system. I I just figured, you know, it would take a long time for a table of 19 to open. By the time it did, everyone really would be here. So, in other words, I lied. Right? So, and Mike's colleague said to him, you lied to the Amish. You shouldn't do that. Lie to the Presbyterians, that's fine, but not to the Amish, right? Two minutes later, the host said, Graves, party of 19. So he had to go back, and and he said, "Uh, we're not all here yet. And the Amish man said, did you lie? (laughs) And Mike said everyone was silent and was looking at him. And he said very sheepishly, yeah, I did. The Amish man said, come with me. And Mike said, I couldn't imagine what they were going to do to me. Like, what kind of punishment did the Amish hand out for lying? I, I pictured being put in the stocks, right? The man took them to a separate banquet room, and there was a table full of homemade bread and jams and butter. And the Amish man smiled and said, Have some bread. You're forgiven. That's the gospel. Maybe as you walked in here today, you thought, man, if people only knew, if people only knew what I was really like, what I have said, what I have done, the ways I have failed as a parent, a spouse, a friend, the thoughts that I have, the secret thoughts, if they knew, man, they would kick me out of here. Nah, because they'd have to kick the pastor out too. Because we all got stuff. All God's people got stuff. Receive that grace. Think about it. Let it sink in and ask Jesus to make it real for you. And then give it away because it heals you and me and our world. And this is where Jonah is so perfect for Christmas. Because see, Jonah was sent to a place he did not want to go, rebelled, but eventually went and changed a whole city. And Jesus was sent at Christmas to a difficult place, but he did not rebel. Instead, he went willingly and he changed the whole world through his love and through his grace. His love is the strongest thing on this planet. As the Christmas carol says, he comes to make his blessings known as far as the pain and curse of sin is found, as far as that curse is found, as far as, as far as that curse is found, his amazing love makes all things new. And we remember that at communion. We had communion last week. We're going to have it again because it is a great reminder of God's grace, that, God, that God's love is at work even when we don't see it, that he so loved you, he so loved me, that he said, I would rather die than lose you. And communion is not for people who are perfect. It is not for people who are even good. Uh, it is for screw-ups, slip-ups, messed-up people. If that in any way describes you, You are welcome here at this table because Jesus is our host. Lord, thank you for this tangible reminder that you love us no matter what, that your grace 
is always at work healing and transforming. And God, we pray that as we come to communion, that you would use this time to help us experience you, to help us connect with you more. Jesus, set this time aside from a common to a sacred use so that we could meet with you. In your name, amen. On the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this bread is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new and the everlasting covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. All of you drink from this. And every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we are reminding ourselves of Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again. And this morning, whenever you feel led, just go to one of the stations in the front or the back of the room, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup as a reminder that we want to be immersed in the life and love of Jesus. The body of Christ given for you. Have some bread. You're forgiven.